As your time in the 75th Precinct continued, did you find other opportunities as well besides shaking down drug dealers for making money off the job? I found a lot of ways to make money. What about with regard to what you called radio runners, called for service? Were they opportunities for corruption for you? <clears throat> uh, yes. There was plenty of opportunities. The radio runs were the ones that would give me the tips on where to go and where not to go. Well, how, what, how do you mean that, sir? Well, by uh, <clears throat> the best way to do, uh, I guess I'm going to teach everybody how to make money here. The best way to not, make. Huh? Let's hope not. Let's just get. Well, to that's, the truth. I, I don't. I, I'm embarrassed by saying a lot of these things. It's not that simple, you know. The best way I would uh, pick a radio run is by the infrequency of the, or the, the least probability of it being called. Um, maybe you'll get a call ten times a day, you'll get the same location or the same address. And you know it's really not a good call to go on to make money. Not only has it been hit three times already that day, but also it's just, it's played out and it's a good chance you're going to get set up. Okay, let me stop you there for a moment, Mr. Dow. So what you're saying is, as your experience as a police officer uh, grew, you would also get a better sense or a better smell for corruption opportunities? Certainly. Okay. Why don't you give us an example of how now, as you've become an experienced corrupt cop, um, you knew what opportunities on radio runs might be lucrative? I'll give you a, a case scenario, if that's sufficient. Please. Uh, I have an incident where uh, we'll get a call for shots fired at a certain, des a certain address, Pine Street, say, off the corner of Linden Boulevard. It's a very quiet area, nothing goes on down there. Uh, you don't often get a, even a fake call down there, never mind a, a call for, say, someone shot. So you, you know, your experience tells you that this is probably a good call. Uh, the sad thing is that someone's probably shot and someone's probably dead. But the other thing in the back of your mind, which was my mind at the time, was that there's probably a reason this person was shot, and it's probably over money and drugs. And so it's just so happened that uh, when you get, you, when your experience tells you these things, and you know. So when you get a location that is a rare location over the radio, what do you do, even if it's not your sector? Do you go there? Well, if I wanted money that day, yes. Okay, so what would happen? Do you have an example? Did that ever occur in your yes, experience? Uh, yes, uh, I'll give you the example on uh, Pine Street. There was a man shot through the peephole of his, uh, his door. Obviously, he was shot by a friend because the door was unlocked. And uh, we arrived at the location. Mind you, if I describe these things, it's not so easy. They're, they're hectic. People are running around. I'm walking into this building with guy dead on the floor here, gunfire going off upstairs, doors and drawers and cabinets and everything opening and closing. And in my warped mind, I'm saying they're hiding the drugs. I'm not, I'm not worried so much about the guns and. I'm worried about, oh shit, uh, they're hiding the drugs or the, uh, the money.
In other words, you're, you're concerned that you might not find drugs and money there. I knew they were hiding it. I was getting a little concerned, but I, I, that there was, uh, I knew there was big weapons in the house, so I had to step back a little. Uh, that's just the way it was. So what happened in that incident? Well, after I convinced the people upstairs that I was the police and I wasn't going to hurt them, they came to the stairwell. I got a picture. It's a long climbing stairs, and they're upstairs, and I don't know what's up there, and you're scared. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking about the drugs and the money. I had to get up there. Sure enough, I got up there, and I found it. I found uh, another table, almost like these things. These tables are perfect for them. Another table like this with uh, drugs on it and empty crack vials, thousands and thousands of empty crack vials, so I knew I was on a spot. So what I did was I, I had my partner watch the door, because now you got to realize it's a hectic scene. There's people dead, there's, there's, there's a lot of cops coming and going, so I had my partner watch the door while I searched this room. Well, he got a little excited. He came in the room with me, and we had another cop outside watching the door. And meanwhile, there's 15 cops in and out of the place. My partner found a gun, and he's a gun buff, so he wanted to take the gun. I told him, put the gun down. We got drugs over here, and uh, drugs is, you can buy 10 times the guns than you can with the drug money. So we took a bag of drugs out of the house. And did you manage to resell that? Yeah. How much, what was your score on that particular incident, Mr. Dowd? Uh, I can't be accurate with that. I'd say $1,200, I don't know. Sorry? Maybe $1,200. Did there come a time, Mr. Dowd, where you made even bigger scores than that? Did your ambitions increase? Yes. Could you tell us about that, how that developed? Well, I had another job where I came across uh, a, a half a kilo of cocaine. Now, how did you come across that? Was that a radio run? No, that was a pickup. It was a, it was a robbery in the street. I picked up the job. Uh, I went to a house. I followed the kid in. They no I knocked on the door. The young kid let me in and my partner, and we went through the house, and we were able to determine it was a drug house. How did you determine it was a drug house? The looks. The house was too well uh, furnished. Too much money was spent inside the house. And that sort of uh, set off your instincts? Immediately. So what did you do? Well, again, a lot of cops show up because it was a pickup of a robbery. Guns were involved. You know, cops are trying to help each other out. And they come, they show up. And I pushed the collar off on some young cops, and I continued to search the house. And when you say you pushed the collar off on some young cops, can you explain what you mean by that phrase? Well, push the collar. I, young guys showed up. It's a gun collar. They're excited. You want a gun collar, kid? Yes. So they're happy to get. They're happy the to take it. I'm happy to get rid of it because I don't want to go through central booking and go through all the paperwork. And I know there's something else going on here, so I'm more interested in that. So they take the arrest and leave, and then you and your partner do what? Search the house. What do you eventually find? We found a locked suitcase. Uh, I'll tell you how it happened. I find a locked suitcase downstairs in the basement behind something like this, drapes. So I take the suitcase out from behind, and my, I shake it, and I uh, actually I'm praying it's money because it's heavy, but it turns out we couldn't open the briefcase. So my partner ran to the back and got a hacksaw in the guy's workroom. 
and I hacksawed the uh, box open, uh, the briefcase open, and I pulled out a half a kilo of cocaine. What'd you do with the cocaine? Well, I slipped it under my jacket, and I walked out of the house, only to be confronted by the owner, who got me nervous. I felt like I was stealing his drugs. I might get in trouble, I don't know. Did you, was there ever a complaint made about that, Mr. Dow? Any complaint at all in that, that incident? No. Were you able to sell the cocaine? Yes. Was that through yourself, your own efforts, or your partner's efforts? My partner took it. What was the score, so to speak, on that sale of drugs? $14,000. Mr. Dowd, how much money would you estimate in your first two or three years in the 75th Precinct you were making um, from your illicit activities, from scores, shaking down drug dealers and the rest? The early years? Yes, sir. Before 1986. I don't know, 500 to 1,000 a week, on the average. Mr. Dow, a few minutes ago, you said there are other ways to make money in addition to uh, money off drug dealers. Would you care to tell us some of the other ways that we're able to make money on the job? Well, I had said that we making money on the job means often not spending money. I know you said that some time ago, but a few minutes ago, when you were saying how you were making money of drug dealers, you also said there were other ways to make money. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, oh. there are other ways, like uh, burglaries. Uh, there are... Well, did you actually engage in burglaries? Yes. Will you tell us some of the circumstances, please? Um, well, there'd be a burglary. Uh, actually, I would get called to a burglarized house and uh, if you want me to give you an instance, I'll give you an instance on how, on how it happened. Um, this is probably the most embarrassing thing I ever did as a police officer. I was called to a burglary in progress. The woman that was at the home was a young lady in her early 20s. She was nervous to go in her home, so we accompanied her into, into the home and we checked the place out. And there's a lot more to it before I just say this. Um, I had gotten a new partner at the time, and, and there, uh, he, I had to prove to him that I was good. So in order to prove to him that I was good, I had to, I had to give him some reason to, think that I would, to know that I was good. So what I had done was I told the woman, I said, listen, uh, we don't know if they, they took anything from your house or not, because you're, you're your mother, she's, she's at work. So the mother, I told her, why don't you call your mother at work and tell her uh, and ask her if she has anything hidden in the house that might be missing. So she called her mother, and her mother told her where the money was hidden, and I found it for her. But she never got it. You found it and you took it? Yeah. What sum of money was that, approximately? I'm sorry? What amount of money was that? That was a small amount at the time. It was like $600, $800. Mr. Dowd, I'd like to just go back for a moment um, to the time in which um, you were engaging, as you said before, in 
making scores at radio runs and shaking down drug dealers in your first years at the precinct, because I understand that that incident happened a little bit later right. on, as you explained to the chairman. Right. However, the chairman makes a good point. Besides the drug trade in your first years in the uh, 75th precinct, were there other ways that you would make money off the job with regard to, let's say, business owners? Well, I, I personally didn't get paid from any business owners. What about getting gifts? Yes. How would that happen, Mr. Dowd? How would you become involved with the uh, business owners, people in the community, in order to engage in that kind of corruption? Well, you go, well, it's, everybody likes to have a, a police officer in his store, in and out of his store during the course of a day. They feel safe, and uh, the, the, the neighborhood people see cops in and out of there, so they're less likely to stick them up or bother them or rob them when they leave. And so what happens? So they entice you by, by, by making a nice office to you, whatever it might be. If it's a clothing factory, they offer you clothes. If it's a food place, they give you free food. Uh, so and you would take the clothing and the food as from the business owners? Yes. Okay. Mr. Dowd, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the commission has heard evidence before your appearance here that police officers on occasion used informants um, in order to assist them in identifying locations that they might hit. Was that true in your experience as well? Yes. How would that take place in your experience, Mr. Dowd? How would that take place? Yes. Well, you speak to a local drug dealer or a, or a drug user, or somebody who uh, maybe they're tired of being shaken down and they want you to leave them alone, so they give you other information. Or um, you happen to catch them with a couple of pieces of uh, narcotics on them, and it's not worth the arrest and it's not worth taking, usually you let them go. Has that happened to you? In your, did you use informants to hit drug spots? Yes. Do you recall any particular example? I'm thinking of a uh, bodega on the corner of Shepherd Avenue. Yes. How did that take place? How did you use the informant to identify a location for corruption? Well, that was back in 1985 now. Again, I've, I've lost I, a little... As I said, I wanted to go back to that, uh, to that time period. In uh, not, yeah, well, what happened then was uh, my partner who was really, he, he, was, he was into coke a lot at the time, and maybe I didn't know it. And uh, we found this guy who had actually come out of the spot, which was a, was a bodega, and um, he had drugs on him, and uh, he told us where he got it and how he got it. So we planned uh, for the following day to go back there and hit the spot with him. What we had was we, we told him to go in, buy his piece, and then come out, and if he has, if he, if they had, we would go in and hit the store ourselves in uniform. And did you do that? Yes. Did the people in that store make a complaint against you and your partner? I believe someone tried to. You say tried to. What happened, based on your knowledge? Well, we took a gun and some drugs, and, and uh, one of the women, there was a woman uh, who... Uh, she was crazy. She went to the precinct to tell the police that I took her gun. What happened when she got to the, uh, the station? I don't know that she ever made it to the desk. I don't know. I don't even know. Oh, maybe they thought she was crazy. Was it your attitude that your supervisors would protect you? 
with regard to allegations of corruption that came in about you in these early years? Yes. Would they, they, they deflected a lot of it. Would they tell you about that? Well, there were instances where they let us let it be known. Let it be known that what? That we were uh, getting some complaints or that we may be being watched. And would that assist you in uh, covering up or concealing well, it, your corruption? It would help us either change our patterns or stop. Did anyone ever tell me to stop? No. Mr. Dowd, did there come a time in 1986 that you were transferred out of the 75th Precinct? Yes. Based on your conversations with police officers in that precinct and with supervisors, how many police officers would you say knew about the corruption that you and your crew were engaging in at the time? The whole precinct. Were your supervisors, like the integrity control officer and the commanding officer, aware of this? Yes. How do you know that? <clears throat> well, my uh, partner happened to be friendly with the ICO and uh, the integrity control officer, and uh, he had made mention that uh, there was a, uh, someone made a, a complaint and just watch yourselves. And then uh, shortly thereafter, um, I was called in by the inspector to drive him to a borough meeting. And I drove, my partner and I drove him down to the meeting, and it just seemed very odd. Uh, you know, cops have a sixth sense of, about things. They knew, they know when something's up. And I knew something was up, so did my partner. We dropped the uh, inspector off at the uh, borough meeting. He said it was an emergency borough meeting, and these things don't happen. The inspector being the commanding officer of the 75th Precinct? Yes. So after we dropped him off, um, he, we went back and he called for us to come back and pick him up about two hours later. Well, when we picked him up, we got him in the car. And my driving scared the heck out of him, but other than that, he had the chance to say to me uh, and my partner, why don't you uh, put a 57 in? Uh, 57, now, you... uh, 57 is a, a transfer form from one precinct to another. So he, he didn't let us say a word. He just said, I think you two guys are burnt out and uh, the ghetto's got the besties. It's time to move on. So that was pretty subtle. That was a pretty subtle hint right there. So in, he asked you to uh, get yourself transferred out of his command? Yes. And you were pretty much, based on your knowledge, known to be a pretty serious discipline problem at that time? I, I, I don't think that's, that would be a total, totally accurate, but it would, I, I was a problem, yeah. I, I guess I can't cover it any longer. I was a problem. Did you um, eventually get transferred out of the 75th Precinct in 1986? Yes. Mr. Dowd, I'd like to stop you there a moment. During this time, were there rumors circulating your, around your command about a major investigation into police corruption? Yes. And that eventually, um, the it was result... About the, it was about the 77th Precinct. It was about the 77th Precinct? Yes. Did you follow the results of the 77th Precinct case, you and your fellow officers? Yes. Were you very interested in what was going on there? Well, I was happy it wasn't us. 
Do you know that 13 police officers were arrested and indicted as a result of that investigation? Yes. Would you say, based on your first-hand knowledge, that the 75th Precinct was as infested with corruption among cops as the 77th Precinct was at that time? Without a doubt. Mr. Dowd, for all of the time that you were in the 75th Precinct up until 1986 before your transfer, and all the acts of corruption which you've described for us in crimes, did you ever once receive any discipline whatsoever before 1986? I don't think so. Why you there, Mr. Dowd, the 75th Precinct? Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the motivation for uh, what you were doing? Um, in other words, was it because you needed the money? Uh, was it because it was a thrill for you and your partner to do this? What were you thinking? Well, there was a com it's a combination of basically what you said. It was, it was a thrill. It, it, let me back up for one second. The original reasons a lot of these things are done is not to be so, so corrupt. In the beginning, you start out saying, um, you know, you're angry that the drug dealers basically run the street. And you're angry that you have no dent into what they're doing. So in the beginning, you start, well, what the heck? If we arrest them, we get a complaint by our CO or our, or our sergeant that, what'd you do? You took two crack files off the street. You cost the city 16 hours overtime. What's going on here? So, you know, it's that attitude. And then next day, you won't get the same assignment. You'll be on a foot post in the weeds by, uh, by the Bell Parkway. So this is how it begins. And this is how it began with us. And then the negative reinforcement constantly, you know, you said, well, what the heck? Make them pay a tax. Make the drug dealers pay a tax. I mean, don't get me wrong. I didn't go to intended to rob drug dealers. I, I made drug arrests when I first got there. But very, very quickly, you turned off to this by the department itself. And if anybody tells you any different, they're lying. Thanks. <clears throat> Mr. Dowd, when you uh, were transferred uh, out of the 75th Precinct, what detail were you put in then in uh, May of 1986? I was put in the Coney Island detail. What is the Coney Island detail? The Coney Island detail is basically uh, you walk along the boardwalk for the summer. Is it a place where police officers who are known as discipline problems we go to? We call it the dumping. We, we get dumped there from the precinct. It's, it's not a favorable assignment for cops in Brooklyn because they got to travel to the end of Brooklyn and it adds that much more travel time to their assignment, to their day. After your conversation with the inspector, the commanding officer of the 75th precinct, were you thereafter assigned with your partner to the Coney Island detail? Yes, and a few of us, a few others. And a few others from the 75th precinct? Yes. What was your experience there, sir? Coney Island. Well, it was a lot of fun. Well, can you tell us what you mean by fun? Oh, it was fun. It was uh, one drunk day after another. Did you do any police work whatsoever while you were there? I don't think, I don't, you know, what's police work? Police work standing uh, out and making sure you're seen visibly. And you were there day after day in uniform, drunk? 
Most of the time. Did you have supervisors in the Coney Island detail? Sergeants and lieutenants? Yes. Were you observed by them in that kind of condition? Yes. What was the reaction or the consequences of that? Well, there was no consequences. Uh, I mean, one time we were tipped off uh, that we were getting caught in the... Uh, someone made a complaint that the cops were hanging out in the bar. So the lieutenant told us at roll call one day, I know it's none of you guys, but someone made a complaint that the cops are hanging out in a bar in uniform. So after the beads of sweat went away on my brow, I didn't go back there. What happened to your partner um, during the Coney Island detail? He quit. He resigned? Yeah, he resigned. Why did he resign? Because of uh, the noise coming out from the 7-7 investigation and because he had a feeling that one day he might get arrested. Did you have any dangerous experiences while you were out in Coney Island, while you were intoxicated, as you described? Yes. Tell the commissioners what that was. I, uh, well, I was very, very, very drunk, so even that's a little cloudy, the memory of it. All I remember was we were coming back to the precinct, and, uh, We were in a police blazer, and they had just stopped off and picked up some Dunkin' Donuts. Strange. And, uh, I usually don't eat Dunkin' Donuts. And I ate it, and I threw up all over the, inside the car, because I was so drunk that they were trying to sober me up, is what they were doing. <clears throat> when we got back in front of the precinct, uh, a crazed, crazed guy came to the precinct with a toy gun in his hand and pointed it at about 40 cops. Miraculously, he didn't get shot. He threw the gun down and it broke in half. And I was so drunk, I was in the car and I was pointing the gun through the window of the Jeep. And ranting and raving in my drunk stupor. Uh, I ended up assisting and cuffing him. Don't have me ask me how I got there. I probably flew. And then I ended up uh, carrying him back into the pre- well, carrying, assisting him back into the precinct with the lieutenant in tow. With you? I didn't know the lieutenant was there. I couldn't see. Did you ever receive from that lieutenant any sort of discipline for being drunk and unholstering your firearm while you were in that condition? No. No. Uh, firstly, Mr. Dow, did you ever get any offer of treatment or help at that point in your career? No. Even though there were a lot of people, including officers who observe, uh, senior officers who observed your condition. Mr. Chairman, with the uh, Commission's permission, we'd like to take a five-minute recess at this point. Certainly, we'll recess for five minutes. We'll return at 11.05. Well, Mr. Dowd, the services that you're being paid so generously for derive solely from the fact that you were a New York City police officer? Yes. 
And is it accurate that if not for your badge and your uniform, that you could never have made a cent from Baron Perez and the other drug traffickers? It's pretty accurate. Mr. Dowd, could you enlighten us? What can a patrol officer like yourself, or any patrol officer, offer to drug organizations that could be worthy of such a price tag? Well, there's, there's, there's two different types of things you can offer. <clears throat> One would be intangible things, and then there would be the tangible things. Why don't we start with the intangibles? Explain that if you could. All right, intangibles would be, a drug dealer would be able to um, brag, amongst other drug dealers, that he got a cop on his payroll. <clears throat> and that would give him a lot of respect in the drug world. And by getting respect, that would give him power amongst other drug dealers to leave him alone, not to compete with him, various things of that nature that would, you know, come with that. He'd have juice. And by juice you mean power. Yeah. Power to dr rival drug dealers. Right. And that power came from the fact they had a New York City cop on their payroll? Yes. What about the tangible benefits, Mr. Dowd? Could you tell us about that? <clears throat> well, tangible benefits, so you, you're talking about being able to, uh, if you come across information, to tip him off with it. <clears throat> also, you're able to put pressure on his other drug dealers that are giving him competition in the neighborhood. Let's stick with the information, if we could, for a moment. Tell us about that. Was the information that you were providing to these drug dealers, was it real? Or was it, again, common sense, like you mentioned before? Most of it was even imagined, but some of it was real. So, was most of it imagined, you mean? Yes. And you were getting paid even for the imagined information that you would provide? Yes. But there was no way of them ever knowing if the information was imagined or not, is that correct? No, because if you're telling me he, there's going to be a bust today, and they close their shop up, and they don't get busted, they feel they won. So you were always safe? Right. You had a stream of income guaranteed even from fabricating information that they'd never know about? Right. What about real information, Mr. Dow? Did you ever provide these drug traffickers with real information? <clears throat> uh, one specific occasion I was able to save their day. Could you tell us about that? <clears throat> I uh, was working uh, the sector that I normally work, and his, uh, his, his business happened to be, at this time, in the sector that I normally work, and I... Uh, <clears throat> I saw an undercover agent in the neighborhood, about a block or two away from his store. And I happened to just pull up alongside and ask him, what, what's up? You know, agents are pretty tight-lipped, and for good reason. He says, uh, nothing much. He says, we got something going on. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, I asked him where. And he said, around the corner. That was all he would say. Now, because there's four different ways to go around the corner. But I know that there were six drug spots on the corner, around the corner. The one where my, my employee, you want to call him, was located. One of the employees that you were protecting? Yes. Getting paid for protecting? Right. Okay, so what did you do with the information that this agent that wasn't tight-lipped in this instance gave to you? Well, I figured I had nothing to lose by telling him that he might be getting busted. So I went into the store. I parked the car across the street, I walked across, my partner sat in the car, I went inside, I picked up two Heinekens, I walked to the counter, I made a hand motion like this to the guy behind the counter, 
and I mouthed the word close. I took the two beers, put them in a the bag, and walked out. So even though you know that that location, locations in the area, are under surveillance by agents, law enforcement agents, walk into one of the locations in uniform, give them a sign, walk out with two, with two beers? Yeah. Were you afraid at the time? Yeah. But you did it anyway? Yeah. And why was that? That was paying me $8,000 a week. So you made it worth your while? Yep. Did, did they raid the store after you left? Shortly thereafter. Could you tell us about that? The chairman raised a good point. What happened after that? Well, I left because I, I didn't want to. I knew it was the area was hot, and I, uh, and I knew what I had done was was bad. And I knew that if if there was a raid and it was that location, I didn't want to be around to see it. So they came. And, you know, mind you that I, I hate to minimize things, but I did make sure that they had no guns or anything like that in the location. I told them straight up, no guns in your location, because I didn't want any agents or anybody getting hurt, because I still was a police officer. Even though it doesn't seem that way at times, I still had my heart there, half the way. Mm -hmm. I just want to clarify, so was that location ultimately raided? Yes, it was. And as a result of the information, the sign that you had given them, what happened? Was the raid thwarted? Yes. There was... They found nothing. Because they knew to discontinue any... Right. ...operations at that time. Correct. Okay, so you were able to thwart that raid. Yes. Did a single supervisor ever come up to you and ask you about the fact that you pulled up in your RMP just about the time that this raid was supposed to take place, walked in, Gave him a sign, and in a few minutes walked out with two Heinekens? No. No one questioned you about that at all? No, I was surprised. I was actually waiting to be questioned. I thought I was maybe caught on tape somewhere, or... I was surprised. And what message did that send to you at that point, that not a single supervisor in the department ever asked you a question about that incident? Well, uh, I... I don't know. It was obvious that they couldn't... They didn't do anything. I don't... You know, it was obvious they couldn't catch me or they couldn't do anything. I don't, I don't know. Do you know whether the undercover cop uh, saw you go into the place before the raid took place? The one that I had spoken to? Because yes. there's usually dozens of them around. The one I had spoken to didn't see me go in. You don't know whether there's some other undercover? I'm code. sure there was undercover around. They're, all, they're probably surveilling the place constantly. Mr. Dowd, did these drug organizations that you were protecting ever want you protect, to protect them not only from law enforcement, but to use your authority as a New York City cop to protect them from rival drug dealers? Yes. Could you tell us about that, please? Well, when you say protect them from rival drug dealers, you know, it was more or less the competition. They wanted us to keep pressure on them. Uh, so what we would do was, uh, there was times when we would... Like, yes. So you went to that drug location in uniform yes. times to pick up $8,000 in cash? Yes. Every Tuesday? Every Tuesday. Did anyone ever stop you and ask what you were doing every Tuesday in no. uniform going to this drug location? No. Mr. Dowd, did the services that you're being paid so generously for derive solely from the fact that you were a New York City police officer? Yes. And is it accurate that if not for your badge and your uniform that you could never have made a cent? from Baron Perez and the other drug traffickers? It's pretty accurate. 
Mr. Dowd, could you enlighten us? What can a patrol officer like yourself, or any patrol officer, offer to drug organizations that could be worthy of such a price tag? Well, there's, there's, there's two different types of things you can offer. <clears throat> One would be intangible things, and then there would be the tangible things. Why don't we start with the intangibles? Explain that if you could. All right, intangibles would be, a drug dealer would be able to um, brag, amongst other drug dealers, that he got a cop on his payroll. <clears throat> and that would give him a lot of respect in the drug world. And by getting respect, that would give him power amongst other drug dealers to leave him alone, not to compete with him, various things of that nature that would, you know, come with that. He'd have juice. And by juice, you mean power. Yeah. Power to dr rival drug dealers. Right. And that power came from the fact they had a New York City cop on their payroll? Yes. What about the tangible benefits, Mr. Dowd? Could you tell us about that? <clears throat> well, tangible benefits, so you, you're talking about being able to, uh, if you come across information, to tip him off with it. <clears throat> also, you're able to put pressure on his other drug dealers that are giving him competition in the neighborhood. Let's stick with the information, if we could, for a moment. Tell us about that. Was the information that you were providing to these drug dealers, was it real? Or was it, again, common sense, like we mentioned before? Most of it was even imagined, but some of it was real. So, was most of it imagined, you mean? Yes. And you were getting paid even for the imagined information that you would provide? Yes. But there was no way of them ever knowing if the information was imagined or not, is that correct? No, because if you tell them he, he, there's going to be a bust today and they close their shop up and they don't get busted, they feel they won. So you were always safe? Right. You had a stream of income guaranteed even from fabricating information that they'd never know about? Right. What about real information, Mr. Dow? Did you ever provide these drug traffickers with real information? On <clears throat> uh, one specific occasion, I was able to save their day. Could you tell us about that? <clears throat> I uh, was working uh, the sector that I normally work, and his, uh, his, his business happened to be, at this time, in the sector that I normally work, and I, uh, <clears throat> I saw an undercover agent in the neighborhood about a block or two away from his store. And I happened to just pull up alongside and ask him what, what's up. You know, agents are pretty tight-lipped, and for good reason. He says, uh, uh, nothing much. He says, we got something going on. I said, oh, yeah, and he said, I asked him where, and he said, around the corner. That was all he would say. Now, there's four different ways to go around the corner, but I know that there were six drug spots on the corner, around the corner, the one where my, my employee, you want to call him, was located. One of the employees that you were protecting? Yes. Getting paid for protecting? Right. Okay, so what did you do with the information that this agent that wasn't tight-lipped in this instance gave to you? Well, I figured I had nothing to lose by telling him that he might be getting busted, so I went into the store, I parked the car across the street, I walked across, my partner sat in the car, I went inside, I picked up two Heinekens, I walked to the counter, I made a hand motion like this to the guy behind the counter, and I mouthed the word, close. I took the two beers, put them in a bag, and walked out. So 
Even though you know that that location, locations in the area, are under surveillance by agents, law enforcement agents, walk into one of the locations in uniform, give them a sign, walk out with two hot, with two beers. Yeah. Were you afraid at the time? Yeah. But you did it anyway. Yeah. And why was that? That was paying me eight thousand dollars a week. So it made it worth your while. Yep. Did, did they raid the store? After you left? Shortly thereafter. Could you tell us about that? The chairman raised a good point. What happened after that? Well, I left because I, I didn't want to. I knew it was the area was hot, and I, uh, you know, I knew what I had done was was bad, and I knew that if if there was a raid and it was that location, I didn't want to be around to see it. So they came, and you know, mind you that. I hate to minimize things, but I did make sure that they had no guns or anything like that in the location. I told them straight up, no guns in your location, because I didn't want any agents or anybody getting hurt, because I still was a police officer. Even though it doesn't seem that way at times, I still had my heart there, half the way. I just want to clarify, so was that location ultimately raided? Yes, it was. And as a result of the information, the sign that you had given them, what happened? Was the raid thwarted? Yes. There was... They found nothing. They knew to discontinue any... Right. ...operations at that time. Correct. Okay, so you were able to thwart that raid. Yes. Did a single supervisor ever come up to you and ask you about the fact that you pulled up in your RMP just about the time this raid was supposed to take place, walked in, gave him a sign, and in a few minutes walked out with two Heinekens? No. No one questioned you about that at all? No, I was surprised. I was actually waiting to be questioned. I thought I was maybe caught on tape somewhere. Or I was surprised. And what message did that send to you at that point, that not a single supervisor in the department ever asked you a question about that incident? Well, uh, I, I don't know. It was obvious that they couldn't, they didn't do anything. I don't, you know, it was obvious they couldn't catch me or they couldn't do anything. I, I don't you know. Do you know whether the undercover cop uh, saw you go into the place before the raid took place? The one that I had spoken to? Because yes. there's usually dozens of them around. The one I had spoken to didn't see me go in. You don't know whether there's some other undercover? I'm person. sure there was undercover around. They're, all, they're probably surveilling the place constantly. Mr. Dowd, did these drug organizations that you were protecting ever want you protect, to protect them not only from law enforcement, but to use your authority as a New York City cop to protect them from rival drug dealers. Yes. Could you tell us about that, please? Well, when you say protect them from rival drug dealers, you know, it was more or less the competition. They wanted us to keep pressure on them. Uh, so what we would do was, uh, there was times when we would, like I had said earlier, we'd camp out in front of their stores so that they couldn't do business. Camping out, you mean you'd be in your RMP? Yeah. In uniform? Yeah. While on duty? Right. Okay, continue. <clears throat> we would also sometimes have the guys that had used to be on the job would come in and they'd pressure them. They'd go in and make believe they were Brooklyn North Narcotics, <clears throat> do a fake raid on the place, and we'd be outside in the radio car do a fake raid, and then what would you do? I'd be there to back them up. You know, in the car, I wouldn't have to go in. They just went in there to show that there was force, and that, you know, they'd leave a message 
overtly or not about uh, what they were doing. You know, whether they were putting pressure on uh, the Diaz organization or not. Diaz organization being a competing rival drug organization? Right. Well, Diaz organization is the organization that was pay paying me. One of the organizations that was paying you, is that right? Right. Any other ways that you were able to use your authority as a New York City cop to protect rival drug dealers and to earn your paycheck? Well, I was able to uh, maybe put paperwork in on other locations. In other words, uh, intelligence reports. And uh, through those intelligence reports, I would be able to put le legitimate pressure on the other organizations through narcotics raids. And what kind of pressure were you trying to put on them? What, was the, what were you trying to accomplish with that pressure? Well, I wanted there to be less competition or at least cooperation amongst them. In terms of pricing, you mean? Yes. So it was a sense of price control as well? Yes. You were trying to establish your authority as a cop. Right. Mr. Dad, are you familiar with the phrase riding shotgun? Yes. Could you tell us what that means? Oh, riding shotgun uh, simply would be guarding somebody as they transport drugs or money or whatever it happens to be. Did you ever ride shotgun for any drug traffickers? Well, that I can recall, I did it once. So what you mean by that, then once when you're in uniform, I assume? Yes. In your RMP? Right. You were following drug traffickers to protect them in case law enforcement stopped them? Well, for two reasons. One was for uh, other officers wouldn't stop them, and the other one was for other drug dealers to keep them from being robbed. How else were you assisting the drug traffickers at this stage in your career? Were, they ever, were you ever assisting them in finding specific spots or drug locations? Yes, well what had happened was after the uh, raid went down <clears throat> that I was able to thwart. Uh, about seven days later they were raided again and uh, they were arrested, several of the people inside. <clears throat> and I had told the owner of the, of the business, I said, listen, you know, how much more could I do for you? I said, you know, this is crazy. You got to move. So I ended up knowing a guy who was selling a bodega, and I suggested they move there. It was a better, more secluded location. Mm -hmm. And they really couldn't question if you said that a location was hot. They would never question that, given your authority, no. given your inside knowledge that they assumed you had. Well, I mean, you know, I, I was out there eight and a half hours a day. I know what's, what spots were hot and which weren't. Mm -hmm. Based upon your testimony today, is it fair to say that you were a fairly central figure to these drug organizations? Well, they looked for me for a lot of information. Looked to you, let's see, as based on your testimony as to when they could deal drugs, is that true? Yes. Where they could deal drugs, is that true? Yes. In some instances, how they could deal drugs, is that true? Safely. Yes. So is it fair to say then that you were a pretty central figure for these drug traffickers? They looked to you to tell them how they could survive, how they could make money. Uh, yeah, the evidence points that way. Mr. Dowd, were there ever any other police officers that were assisting you in your efforts with these drug traffickers? Yes. Could you tell us about that? Well, there was my partner, who was a central figure to anything I did. Mm -hmm. There were um, <clears throat> many of the officers in the precinct knew we were doing things. And they would be willing to help us at any cost. 
What do you mean by that? <clears throat> what do I mean? They wanted to be around us. You know, they, they wanted to know what was going on and how they can get in on it. Were these all the cops in your precinct that wanted to get on it, or were there a certain group of cops well, it was, in your precinct? It was a certain number. It was basically the cops that worked with us. How many cops are you talking about? Uh, this is, now this is two years later, so it's about another 10 or 15 different cops. So we're now we're in 1987, right? The end of 87, the beginning of 88. And you're saying that there were 10 to 15 other cops that were working with you? When you say working with me, uh, that's different. Uh, I don't, I don't well, like to... Let me to... ask you, you just made reference to 10 or 15 cops assisting you. Could you explain to us what you mean by that? Well, they, they, if they knew that something... They knew that we needed information. If they had any information, they would give it to us. If they knew of uh, a location that was doing some business, they would tell us. Uh, and what was in it for them? Well, they were hoping to, to score points with us so that we could put them on the dole out, you know, give them money, show them how to make money. Was this a way for them to get in? Now, they weren't helping you with your major drug organization. No, no, what saying? no, no. So they were helping you, giving you tips to try to get on your good side? Yes. With the hope that maybe one day they could graduate into assisting you with these drug traffickers? Well, what had happened was they took over the petty stuff, most of them. Because you had graduated now into doing more serious crimes. That's correct. Did you could help you them? tell me uh, a little bit of the, the other commissioners about your feeling and your reaction to the fact uh, that indeed you weren't questioned uh, and you weren't um, in any way caught during the um, course of all these dealings. Did that, for instance, somehow embolden you to do more in this area? Did you feel free about what you were going to do? First of all, I, there was times when I was shocked that I got away with so many of these things. Also, mind you, I was becoming heavily addicted to cocaine and alcohol, so my inhibitions were down, and some personal problems I've been going through, too. So all that combined, it, uh, it certainly shocked me. I, I, can't, I, I don't know how sometimes I showed up for work. Mr. Gill, we'll get to your drug addiction in a few moments. What about the non-corrupt cops in your precinct at this time? They know what you were up to? Yes. They knew that you were working for drug traffickers? They had, look, they're cops. They have an idea. You know, they don't have to come out and say they know things. The cops are cops. They can read. And despite that, did a single officer ever say to you, Dad, I know what you're up to. You better cut it out? No. They even suggest they knew you were up to? They were you better afraid. Cut it out? They were afraid to say anything. Even the honest cops? Yes. Even though they knew that you as a corrupt cop were making their life more difficult on the job? I guess so. They never said anything to me. Why would that be? Why would even the honest cops remain silent? They don't want to ruin their career as being labeled a rat. And so the fear of being labeled a rat was so powerful that even the honest cops would remain silent, you're saying? Yep. Were they ever trying to thwart your efforts in any way, Mr. Dow, the honest cops or the other cops that you weren't working with during your years in working with these drug organizations? No. Were they actually assisting you in any way? What are you saying? Sometimes they would. They but would assist you? How would that? How well, would that come about? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, like a guy would be honest. He's an honest cop. He's not taking money. He's doing his job. But he knows that I'm taking money or whatever I'm doing at the time. 
and uh, maybe he he would tip me off that uh, the boss wants summons is written over at this location it happens to be my friend's spot he'll tell me look Mike you know the boss is ordering me to go over there and give summonses out so this went on for, for in one instance for about a week until finally the lieutenant himself had to go out and give the summonses out the lieutenant himself had to go give out the summons because the other cops refused to do it because it was one of your locations yeah So by 1987, Mr. Dad, you're fairly deeply entrenched in the narcotics trade in the 75th Precinct. Is that accurate? Yes. Were you still engaging in the more minor kinds of corruption, and I hate to use the word minor, but shaking down drug dealers, that kind of corruption that you were engaging in in your early days in the 75th Precinct? If, if, if an opportunity came along where it was a big enough score, yes, but for the little stuff, no. You'd really just basically at this point graduated just the more serious crimes. Right. I mean, uh, if I had to recant, I probably couldn't recant one incident, incident, but I'm sure there was. You mentioned your drug use a few moments ago, Mr. Dowd. Was your use of drugs getting heavier at this point in your career? You... I'll say. I'll say. Could you tell us about that? I was using drugs heavily. On the job? Yes. In uniform? Yes. Well, you are on duty, you're saying. Yes. What kind of drugs are you talking about? Cocaine and alcohol. Were you trying to conceal your use of drugs and alcohol on the job? In the beginning, I did. And what about later on? Well, I used to do it off the dashboard. Off the dashboard? Yeah. The dashboard of your RMP? Yeah. You do lines of coke off the dashboard in your RMP when you are on duty? Yes. Would that be in front of your partner? Yes. Is he doing it with you? No. Were you aware of whether any other cops were using drugs while they were on duty, Mr. Dad? I can't say. It's possible. Did a single supervisor ever question you about the use of drugs during your time in the 75th Precinct? No. You said you were drinking. You made a reference to drinking on the job. Is that correct? Yes. How often were you drinking on the job at this point in your career? Every day. How much? Depends what I was drinking. What I mean is, were you visibly drunk while you were on duty ever at this point in your career? Sometimes. <clears throat> Did anyone again, a supervisor, ever stop you and say, Dad, I know you're drinking on the job, cut it out? No one ever said that to me. Did a single cop ever say to you, Dad, you're on duty, you're in uniform? What are you doing drinking on the job? Not at this point. Were there other police officers that are drinking on the job as well at this time? Well, that's probably why they never said anything. Give us a sense of what you mean by that. How many police officers are drinking on the job, on duty, while in uniform, during this time in the 75th precinct? Well, I, I don't know their, their drinking habits, but certainly there was a good eight to ten every day drinking on the job with us. And Mr. Dowd, do you base it on your personal knowledge? Yes. Based on your personal knowledge, have you witnessed eight to ten cops drinking on the job? No, that's, there's dozens of cops drinking all day long. You know, and witnessing, depends where, what time, they've been, they drink all day long. Were any of these cops ever driving their RMP while they were under the influence of alcohol? Yes. And that was a regular occurrence? They were working. 
Mr. Dowd, were you or the other cops trying to do anything to conceal your alcohol consumption at this point in your career? Yeah, we put a breath mint in, maybe. But give us a breath mint. How would you do it? How could you drive around in your RMP drinking beers without anyone ever stopping you? Was there a trick? Secret? How does anybody drink and drive? Mr. Dowd, when you would be taking cocaine off the dashboard, did your partner ever try to dissuade you in any way? Or try? No. no. He was happy when I did the coke because he knew I got in a better mood. He knew I'd be able to concentrate more and, you know. He... Mr. Dowd. During this period of 1987 to 1988, did you ever perceive what you thought to be representatives of internal affairs uh, around maybe surveilling any of your activities? There may have been one or two occasions. And did you take any uh, steps when you thought you saw someone from an internal affairs following you or your crew during that period? There was nothing. To, there was no steps to take. Just went about our regular day. Did you ever get any tips from any fellow officers within or without your precinct during the period of 1977, 87, and 88 about possible IAD super supervision? I mean, surveillance. Well, look. The, Oftentimes, um, they're, no, they're known to be in the precinct. I mean, you know, they're known to be there. And uh, in other words, someone saw, someone saw them that day, and then, you know, we know they're there for us, so we just be careful that day. So from time to time, there was at least a report that they were around, and you took uh, suitable uh, action, or perhaps I should say inaction, on that day. Not necessarily. We just were more cautious. Thank you. In the, um, in the precinct, was there a PBA delegate assigned to the precinct? Yes. Is that so in every precinct? Yes. Did you ever have any discussions with the PBA delegate, or did he ever discuss with you the fact that you were drinking on a job or using drugs on a job? No, most of them were drinking, too. Can I go back to um, um, the uh, woman who complained uh, about your having stolen her uh, gun? And uh, there was a statement you made, and maybe I misunderstood it, about <clears throat> you weren't sure whether she ever even made it to the desk. Could you explain that uh, to us? Well, what had happened was <clears throat> I had heard that she came to the precinct to make a complaint. Someone had told me that a woman came in the precinct making a complaint that we had stolen her gun. Nobody comes in and complains that you stole their gun. Why is that? Because it was, a, it was an illegal possession. She didn't have a license for it. I was shocked. And just as well as everybody else probably was and said she's crazy. Mr. Dowd, let's go back. Uh, Ms. Corporal. Mm -hmm. Mr. Dowd, uh, during the course of your testimony, you indicated that police officers learned about your activities and they would tip you off and do your favors. Yeah. How many police officers were involved in, in your activities, were a part of your team or your group? 
At what point, sir? Uh, when you were r riding shotgun for drug dealers or... Uh, 87, 88 time, uh, yes, I Yes, and say, during that time frame. I, there's a distinction of being actually involved with me and being uh, supporting of, supportive of me. You know, involved was just me and my partner in that one specific thing. But there was other officers that were basically frothing at the mouth to be involved, so they'd do anything to to assist us. They would, they would assist you, they wanted to be a part of your activities. Yes. And how many officers uh, indicated I, to you that they were interested in joining with you in your activities? Ten to fifteen, at ten, least. Ten or fifteen? Yeah. But did you let all, all of them in, did you, Mr. Dowd? No, I told them to go wear out some shoes first and we'll talk. And why was it that you didn't want to let that larger group of police officers involved in your activities with the drug traffickers? Well, I'd have to split up the money with them. Mr. Dowd. I'm sorry. Sure. Mr. Dowd, let's go back to your to the 75th precinct now. Time's around 1987. Based upon what you've testified to over the last hour, you were a pretty busy man in the 75th precinct. You were using your authority as a police officer daily to assist narcotics enterprises, is that correct? Yes. You're selling narcotics on the side, is that correct? Yes. You're using drugs and alcohol daily? Yes. And you're making whatever money off the job you could? Yes. My question at this point, Mr. Dowd, is how did this affect your ability to be a New York City police officer? I did the job I could do. You did the job you could do, but let me ask you this, Mr. Dad. How many arrests did you make after your return from Coney Island, the 75th precinct? I don't believe I made any. How many times were you testifying in court after your return to the 75th precinct? I don't recall testifying in court. How fast were you responding to radio runs if there wasn't money to be made at the other end? Not very quickly. And how often were you off post? Quite often. Mr. Dowd, you said a second ago that when you came back to the 75, you did not make any arrests? I believe that to be correct. Did any superior officer ever ask you why you were not able to effect any arrests in what apparently was a fairly high crime area? No, they were happy that I wasn't making arrests because it wasn't costing the city any money. So, Mr. Dowd, given that you've made no arrests, you're not testifying in court, you're not responding to radio calls very quickly, most good part of your day is off post, you're drinking daily on the job, using drugs on the job, and most of your energies, you said before, are focused on increasing the powers of these drug traffickers. Let me ask the question another way. At this point in your career, did you consider yourself to be a New York City cop or a drug trafficker? Well, it's a... Both. Mr. 
Chairman, I think this might be a good time for the Commission to adjourn for lunch. Uh, we will resume within one hour at about 5 past we'll 10. We'll take a 45 minute recess. 45. We'll resume at uh, 1.45. And we'll recess now. You may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Dow, just before break, you had testified that it was unclear in your mind by your last few years in the 75th Precinct whether you were considered yourself to be a cop or a drug trafficker. I wanted to explore the reason why that was just briefly. By late 1987, how much money were you making a week through your narcotics activities? Anywhere between four and five thousand dollars. Between four and five thousand dollars? Yeah, for myself. By late 1987, how much money were you making a week from your New York, New York City paycheck? About four hundred. So you're making almost 10 times as much money from your criminal activities at this time than you were from the paycheck you were receiving from your department, is that correct? That's correct. How important was that New York City paycheck to you at this time? Well, I used to forget to pick it up. Who did you consider to be your primary employer, in fact, at this point, Mr. Dowd? The department who gave you your shield or the drug traffickers who were willing to pay you because of it? That's a very difficult question to answer straight out. I mean, I, I enjoyed being a police officer, believe it or not. You enjoyed it? Yes. You enjoyed it because of the power that it gave you? I guess that's one aspect. But I enjoyed I enjoyed being a police officer. I, I, I actually enjoyed the, the rare moments when I did help somebody. I enjoyed it. And you enjoyed the money that you were making off the job as well, I assume. Yes. Well, let me rephrase the question, though. At this point, who did you feel, feel that you owed your allegiances to as a New York City police officer? The community that you were supposed to be policing or the drug traffickers that you were protecting? Well, I, I guess I'll have to say the drug traffickers. Could you speak into the mic, please? The drug traffickers. What about your lifestyle at this point, Mr. Dowd? Were you leading the life of a typical New York City cop? I uh, did the best I could to make it look that way. You did the best you could to make it look that way. Could you tell the commissioners and the public what kind of car you were driving at around this time? Uh, 87 Corvette. How many homes did you own? Four. What kind of clothes were you wearing at this time? Expensive. And what kind of vacations were you taking? Many. 
And is that the kind of life that most New York City police officers were able to live based upon the paycheck that they were getting? No. I think that answers the question. Did you try to conceal... Did you try to conceal your lavish lifestyle from the others in your precinct to try to avoid raising their suspicions? In the beginning, after what? a while, I, I lost control of myself. I lost control of my life. So they saw you in the red Corvette, in other words? Yes. They saw the kind of clothes you were wearing, the life you were leading? Yes. And how did these other cops react to that? Well, they saw the uh, exterior part of me, and they, they saw what they saw they liked, and they, they, they tried to cling to me. They, I'm sorry? They tried to cling to me. They, they chaperoned themselves around me. They wanted to know what I was doing. They wanted to be part of it. Who wanted to be part of it, exactly? Whoever knew me. Well, let's try to clarify that a bit. You're talking about officers in the precinct, correct? Yes, mostly the young ones. So you're talking mostly about the younger cops, the rookies? Yeah, well, the, uh, the older cops that were there had their own things going, so they really weren't interested. What are you saying to us? Are you saying that you are a hero to the rookies? In a lot of ways, yes. And how did that manifest itself? Well, they would, uh, they would help me. They would protect me. They would give me information. They, they would come to see me. They would... I don't know if it was out of fear, respect, uh, whatever. They, they... They manifest. Fear, respect, or both? Yeah. And were you giving them any tips on how to become a corrupt officer at this point? Well, they were all, they all wanted a piece of the action, and like I had reiterated earlier, that I, uh, I didn't let them into that because I knew it was wrong for one reason, and the other reasons was I didn't want to share with them. I sent them out into other endeavors. You didn't want to share the profits you're making mean to the other drug traffickers? Yes. You said before they were giving you information. What did you mean by that, that the rookies were giving you information? Well, like, they would tip me off if uh, they saw uh, narcotics guys in the precinct. Uh, they would tell me that uh, there was uh, maybe a suspicious-looking car, like uh, an uh, internal affairs car around. You know, they... It was like a brotherhood. you got to understand, regardless of what I was doing wrong, I was still there with them when they needed me. And they needed me plenty. Did you make it worth their while to give you this kind of information? Did I make it worth their while? Mm -hmm. Did you give them any money? Were they sharing, were you sharing any profits? No. Mr. Dowd, this time in your career, was there any question in your mind as to whether the police officers and supervisors in your precinct knew what you were doing each day when you reported to work in uniform? Was there no doubt? Was there any question in your mind that they knew what you were doing each day when you reported to they, work? They knew what I was doing. And despite that, did a single cop ever say to you, Dowd, I know what you're up to, it's wrong, cut it out? No. Did a single precinct supervisor ever once say to you, Dowd, I know what you're up to, shape up, or you're out of this department? No. Over how long a period of time would you say that set of circumstances existed, Mr. Dowd? <clears throat> well, 
Well, it began back in the early 80s, late 85, early 86. And lasted until uh, when? Well, at that one location, it probably lasted until I went to the rehabilitation, 1988. How long was that? Was what? How long was that period of time when everybody actually knew and nobody did anything? Two and a half, three years. Thank you. Mr. Dowd, by late 1987, you're riding high. You've testified that you're making lots of money off the job, $4,000 a week, and you're a hero to many of the rookies in your precinct. When did that end? <clears throat> well, it ended like uh, I had just said to the chairman up there that uh, I went to a drug, re uh, alcohol rehabilitation program. I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Dowd. When I went to an alcohol rehabilitation program. We'll get to that. Your experience is there in a few moments. After the alcohol rehabilitation program, did you ever return to the 75th precinct after that? The investigation. Why would the drug dealers ever share this information with you? I, I had close ties to the community. Uh, one of the things that I did were to help uh, the drug dealers not get busted by cops by building reinforcement situations. But <coughs> at the same time, the drug dealers saw these cops in my shop a lot, and they knew I had some sort of influence with one or two of them, and they would ask me to put in a word so they wouldn't get hit. And by hit, you mean what? Uh, ripped off either busted or ripped off or just ripped off or you know given a black and blue lesson or depends what the situation is every instance is different and by a black and blue lesson you mean what a beating yeah it's, and it's a, term, a term that they use often a, a black and blue discussion was a beating that they usually gave a black and blue discussion right. was a beating and whose term of art was that excuse me i heard a couple of officers use that phrase Was there any other information that you had about acts of corruption that police officers were engaging in the 9th Precinct? Uh, yes. Uh, some of it uh, to do with uh, the dealers, some of it to do with them informing the dealers that uh, the TNT was in the area, some of it uh, being that uh, they would go to certain stores that they knew were selling drugs, and there were also safe havens such as my shops. I mean, so they were leaking information, you mean? Correct. And what kind of information? Some of the former officers from the 9th Precinct had, had gone into the TNT squad. And when those squads were about to hit areas of the 9th Precinct, they would get in touch with uh, some of the officers that used to hang out in my store. And those officers would, in turn, uh, tell their friends, uh, look, keep it cool tonight, don't have much shit, you know, or send a, a dumb guy in there with a little bit of product in case you get hit. And by TNT, could you tell us what you mean? Tactical, tactical narcotics team. Do you have any knowledge of what these police officers were getting in return for the information they were sharing with people on the street? Uh, a lot of times free drugs, a lot of times money, a lot of times uh, hookups. There was a lot of trading and bartering of different things. Guns, cocaine. I mean, it was very frequent to do a favor for a dealer and get drugs, especially they all like to use. Mm -hmm. So there was nothing more than getting a free passe, as they called it. Mm -hmm. Those are pretty powerful statements you just made. I'd like to ask again what your personal <coughs> basis of knowledge is for the fact 
before your, for what you've just said, that these police officers were leaking information to drug dealers and others in the community. Uh, I've been there. I've seen them. I've, I've, spoke, I've spoke to some of the officers that were even on TNT that have come by in another car, spoke to some of the officers that were hanging out at my shop. Then they go by, then the guy says, uh, we got to watch out for this sector, we got to watch out for this. They're going to come here, et cetera, et cetera. So you'd overhear it in the shop? Excuse me? You'd say you're over, you would overhear this in your shop? Yeah, they would tell it to me as a part of a boast. I mean, oh, just, you I know. See. It was common to, to get the information and say, oh, we have to warn this one, we have to warn that one. But you said before, it's part of a boast. Could you explain what you mean by that? Well, they always wanted to seem, you know, real superior, and as though they, they ran the area, they ruled the streets. So in doing so, they had to exert their power, you know, and to help a drug dealer out, that, means, that meant the drug dealer owed them a favor, especially if it was a tight buddy of theirs, which they had many. Now, was this a common practice? Yes, ma'am. Based on your personal knowledge? Yes, ma'am. Did you ever have any contact with these police officers that would hang out in your shop, outside of your shop? Yes, ma'am. Could you tell us about that, please? Uh, at times, they would drive me to locations where I had jobs. At times, they would drive me to locations where I had job sites, or they would pick me up from job sites, or they would see me in the street, and I'd get into the, to the vehicle, the RLP, and we'd hang out. You know, drink a couple of beers, do a couple of lines of coke, uh, different occasions, different situations. So police officers, while they were on duty in their RMP, would pick you up, drive around with you in the car? Correct. And on occasion, you're saying you do lines of coke in the RMP? Yeah, they usually have a dollar set up with another dollar rolled up into a straw, and then we'd pass it around. With how many police officers did you ever engage in the use of cocaine in an RMP? Uh... Three that I know of. Three personally yeah, that you three were involved that I could with? name by name, yes. I'd like to ask you I believe not there to were, name any names I believe today. there were more, but to my recollection, there was three that I recall, three okay. that stand out. I just want to remind you that you want no testimony today based on speculation. Everything you're testifying about can only be on personal knowledge, unless you make that clear Good beforehand. Enough. Were these police officers doing anything else in their RMPs? Uh, drinking. Uh, Drinking? Yeah. They, they'd either drink beer or alcohol, uh, liquor. Uh, what they used to do sometimes is, like with beer, they had these skins that had like Coca-Cola or Pepsi on the outside. And these skins are very comfortably wrapped around the beer can. And so then they could actually be drinking beer and brought, you know, in front of people and commanders, etc. No one would know the difference. And no one would know. And was that a common occurrence that police officers while on duty would drink beers with some kind of a seal? Yes. They, they had uh, obtained these skins at some police function, and it seemed that all the officers had them. Mm -hmm. And it seemed that uh, many of the units that I see, many of the officers that I see, I see them with these, uh, the beer cans with the outside skin. How many police officers do you have personal knowledge of that would drink on duty in their patrol cars? About 12. About 12, yeah. and that's based on your personal knowledge? Personal knowledge. Uh, and were they drinking to a state of or of intoxication? Uh, a lot of times, yes. And a lot they, of times you could see it. A lot of times they used to race the RMPs just to race them, you know. Just shoot, to race them while yeah. they were on duty? Shoot down uh, Houston to come up D Street and back and see how long they take. 
to go a 14 square block uh, perimeter. They ever seem concerned that someone might see them racing in the streets in the ninth precinct while under the influence of alcohol? No, they pretty much they pretty much were assured that uh, they weren't going to get bothered. Most of the cops knew what they were up to, and, and nobody messed with them. What do you mean nobody messed with them? Nobody messed with them. The, the, the neighborhood never messed with them, and the other police uh, looked the other way or were involved. Before we turn to the next segment of your testimony, I just want to refer back to a reference you made before about guns. Do you have any knowledge of police officers engaging in any corrupt activities in connection with guns? Yes, ma'am. Could you tell us about that? Uh, two are personal knowledge and one on an officer's admission. Uh, once I seen one officer give a gun to my coworker, who had he taken off of a drug dealer and had no use for it. And another time I saw another officer sell a gun to another officer. And it was supposed to be a good throw gun, a good uh, piece. And by a good throw gun, you mean what? It was small enough to conceal that if in case they ever got in a situation where the perpetrator needed to have a gun on them, this gun would be easily accessible to put on the perpetrator. It was a small, uh, like a 25 or something to that nature. It was a small gun, I remember it. It was silver with pearl handle. Mm -hmm. And that these police officers would then steal these guns and either give them to other officers or you're saying resell them to dealers on the street? Yes. Was that a common occurrence, do you know? Uh, to my knowledge, yes. It was very common. A lot of times they didn't keep but only one dirty piece in their possession. I'm sorry? I said it was, it was known to me that they only kept about one dirty piece of their possession or close to them. Mm -hmm. Usually they would find some way to dispose of it by either giving it away or trading it in for a favor or selling it, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And during the two years that these police officers were engaging in the acts that you just discussed, did the police officers ever seem concerned that a supervisor or anyone within the department would ever ask them what they were doing? No, they seemed to know who was coming, when they were coming, and they had it pretty well arranged. I'd like to turn to another area now. Have you ever had any contact with the Internal Affairs Division of the New York City Police Department? Yes, I have. Could you tell us about that? Could you tell us about your experiences with IED, briefly? Uh, initially, in 91, I had given an allegation to IED about a homicidal cop in the 7th Precinct, and they... Uh, they returned it, the allegation as, as though it was frivolous, as though it, it, was, it didn't exist, as I was making it up, you know, here's another guy just bullshitting to make his way. And uh, that didn't turn out to be the case. What, what do you mean it didn't turn out to be the case? Well, uh, after IED dismissed the case as unfounded, etc., uh, the FIAU unit, uh, a detective and a sergeant came up to me and another person I was working with and uh, asked me for the details to that and IED said there was no such officer FIU found and within 24 hours they found a picture a name the whole works they gave me a one out of six uh, pick out 
And I picked the guy right out. So in other words, you gave the information to IED about a police officer that was involved in an act of corruption, a rather serious act of corruption, correct. is that correct? IED told you that no such member of the service existed? Right. The allegation was frivolous, that there was no such uh, officer on the precinct, there was no such officer on the force. And within 24 hours, the FIU, after you giving them the information, was, was able to determine that a police officer under that identity did in fact exist? Yes, ma'am. Did you have any other contacts with IED over the years? Yes, I have. And did you give them information about police corruption? Yes, I have. Could you tell us how IED reacted to you when you gave them information about police corruption? Well, basically, they treated me like I was shit, you know. Even with my, uh, my clear record of being credible, uh, they like to dismiss what I said to them because a lot of it was very harsh, something that would be incredible to believe, but so incredible to believe and it was true. And they just, they didn't care to hear what I had to say. As long as uh, whatever I said didn't involve uh, them doing too much work, I mean, I don't know what to say other than that. Did you get the sense that IED was committed to no, uncovering I, I the full the extent sense, of police corruption? I, I got the sense that they could care less. I got the sense that they, uh, they really didn't care to hear about police corruption. They didn't care to hear who was involved or exactly what was the person was doing. Uh, they wanted to know certain facts, and if the facts didn't pan out the way they liked it, they dismissed the situation, the issue. I'd like to turn out the information about the 9th Precinct. Did there come a time when you reported the information about corruption in the 9th Precinct to anyone in the New York City Police Department? I'm sorry, rephrase that? Okay. Did you ever report the information about corruption in the 9th Precinct to anyone in the New York City Police Department? Uh, yes. Yes or no? <laughs> Could you tell us about that? Yes, I, I told it to FIU, but originally I, I hadn't told anybody. I wasn't sure who I was dealing with. When I was dealing with ID, they could, they weren't listening to what I was saying anyway. And to tell them about the knife precinct meant to jeopardize my situation, my my business, my uh, I lived in the area, my place of residence. Uh, again, I had an established clientele in the area. All these things would become in jeopardy. So no, I didn't tell ID about uh, the knife precinct right off the bat. And when did you ultimately tell someone about the knife precinct? After I found myself very secure with the two uh, officers from FIAU, uh, the officers from FIAU had re-questioned me and asked me if I knew of any other corruption in the department. And at that time, I, uh, I said yes, and they asked me for names, and I gave them uh, names. And the guys at FIAU chuckled and looked around at me and showed me a list, and I had named uh, at least three people from the list. And from there, we proceeded an investigation. So a list of police officers that FAU had, of corrupt officers, you were able to identify Correct. in your first they, meeting they, a group of them? They had already been investigating some of the officers that used to hang out in my store. I see. What exactly did you tell them at that first meeting about corruption at the 9th Precinct? That I wasn't sure what information I would give them at this point, because uh, I had a lot to consider. Uh, a lot of self-preservation. I understand that. I could understand that it, from what you said that there certainly could be difficult to give that information. You were friendly with the officers that hung out in your shop, is that correct? Yes, ma'am. You said you were. You would hang out with them yeah, both they, in your they shop? They used to help me out. They used to give me a line. You know, I had no problem in that precinct. Okay, so my yes. question is this then. 
Why would you ever give the department information about police corruption connection well, with your shop? As I said, this started in 89, and this was about 91. And it had already gotten uh, way out of hand. It had started with one or two officers just coming in, casually hanging out, doing a little liquor, once in a while doing a little coke. It had escalated to full-fledged parties. I mean, they used to keep my business. My business normally closed at 6 o'clock. My business would normally stay open with these officers inside or with the gates drawn till 11.30, you know, very late in the evening. <laughs> At a time it became very abusive. I couldn't function. I couldn't get my job done. And because they were friend, uh, very good friends with my coworker, and because I knew them and because I had done a lot of favors in the area, et cetera, you know, I had declined to go after them. But then after reconsidering uh, the situation, uh, I agreed to help the FIU take down these cops. Did you also know if the information that you provided to the FIU was fruitful, that you would have been paid for the information you provided? Correct. That's standard. If, if you uh, provide information which led to an arrest and conviction, there was uh, money to be gained at the end, yes. Okay. Department records indicate that it was approximately March of 1991 when you first had contact with Manhattan South FIU. Is that accurate? I believe that's correct, yes. Okay. Could you tell us what exactly it was that you told Manhattan South FIU when you met with them in March of 1991? Uh, once I, I decided and agreed to help them, I had informed them that it was not only those officers that, that I named, but there were several others, and that they were engaged in a lot of activities, and I described the activities that I knew of. Uh, at the same time, I had informed them of a, of a barbecue in which most of these officers were uh, invited to and were uh, requested to bring uh, BOD, as I said, it's called bring your own drugs. Plus, uh, the person who was throwing the barbecue was going to have a couple of ounces available for uh, casual use. How many police officers did you expect would be at this barbecue where they were told to bring their own drugs? Well, I knew of of at least 12, but I, I, there were a lot more. First of all, I saw the list, and the list had a lot of officers, not only from the 9th Precinct, but it, it had the officers that I knew of from the 9th Precinct. And uh, also, too, there were going to be officers from uh, a Staten Island Precinct, which the officer used to play basketball with, and he had, by his admission, stated that they used to get into coke and stuff, and they were okay. Who they were cop cops. They were what? Cop cops. What do you mean by cop cops? You know, if, if you, uh, Al Brown, excuse me, yeah, Al Brown referred to them as, uh, that they were cops. They were cop cops. Means uh, they were cool. They were able to do uh, narcotics or alcohol and duty and stuff, and these guys wouldn't tell. They've already been checked out by each other. So they were cop cops. Way of saying that they were, to use someone else's phrase from yesterday, good cops. Cops that would engage in acts of corruption or use drugs in the job. Yeah, but in this particular instance, the word was cop, cops. I see. Well, cops, cop, excuse me. Now, you say that you saw a list. Who was having this party specifically? Say again? Who was having this party? Uh, Alan Brown. And Alan Brown was a police officer in the 9th Precinct? He was a police officer at that point, yes. Other than cops, did you know of anyone else that was going to be attending this barbecue? Uh, myself was invited with, along with other friends of mine. Uh, my co-worker was invited. A lot of the cops that used to hang in my store were invited. Uh, 
of various people. Anyone else from the community in the 9th Precinct? Yeah, of course. We had uh, the drug dealer that got arrested with Alan Brown. He was coming. Uh, a couple other drug dealers that were from that street. So at this party that this police officer was having, this barbecue, there were going to be at least 12 police officers. And in addition to that, other drug dealers yeah. that they hung out with in the precinct? There, there was 12 that I knew of, but there were also more that I didn't know their names. Okay. And yes, there were additional, there were drug dealers that were invited. And how do you know that this police officer was throwing a big party, big bar barbecue, at which cops would be there along with drug dealers from the community? Uh, he did the invitations in front of me a lot of times. Uh, guys would... Uh, be told, hey, you know, I got this barbecue, whatever, you better come. You know, it's BOD, uh, but I have something available, etc. And bring your girl or whatever, you know. When was this barbecue supposed to take place? Uh, I believe around the 4th of July time. So the 4th weekend of July, of the 4th of July weekend. 4th of July weekend, 1991. Correct. And this was now March 1991, is that correct? Correct. Did you think that it was unusual to hear about a barbecue or party three and a half months before the event? No, when they, when they like to do something, they like to do it right and big. And Brown liked to do things big. And this was going to be this something was gonna that was going to be big. big? All the main buddies were going to be there. Some former cops that were discharged from the, from the department were going to be there. Uh, a lot of known drug dealers were going to be there. A lot of known cops were going to be there. Okay. So you gave the F Manhattan South FIU this information in March of 1991. How did they react to the information about this barbecue that was going to occur. They were enthusiastic. They had, they had considered it to be uh, one of the avenues they would take to close a lot of other cases that they had that were, were unsolved or unfounded <laughs> or just in their files. And uh, what this, would, this party, this barbecue would have done would have tied these uh, officers uh, in, the, in the scene of the crime, as you would say. Mm -hmm. They would be there caught doing their drugs, party all high and at this point there was supposed to have taken place a raid with myself being wired and another person being wired okay. and uh, at times it was also considered that I would go in with a, a undercover officer uh, in fact I even asked Brown if I could bring somebody and he said yeah bring whoever you want and I basically meant that I would bring a female companion and he said, I don't care, bring whoever you want, you know. He trusted me that I would bring somebody that's cool. So you and the, Manha well, the Manhattan South FIU then had developed a tactical plan for infiltrating this 4th of July barbecue. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Had you ever been asked to wear a wire to that barbecue? Yes, I was. Did you agree to wear a wire to that barbecue? Yes, I did. Did you ever make plans to have another police officer, a female police officer, accompany you to that barbecue? Uh, that was evaluated, yes. That was uh, reviewed, and that was supposed to be the plan, yes. And in fact, did you ask Police Officer Brown if you could bring a guest to the barbecue? Yeah, I okayed it with him. He said, yeah, bring anybody I want. Again, I say he trusted so, my judgment of the fact that I'd bring somebody who was cool. So plans were well underway, and we'll hear more about those plans the next witness. Was a district attorney involved with the investigation at this point? Yes, he was. And was a district attorney involved in developing the tactical plans for infiltrating this party? Yes. The okay. district attorney became aware to me at the beginning of the case, way back in March, when uh, we had proposed that the, the tactics we would use 
to catch these officers. And you were at meetings with the assistant district attorney? Yes, I was. And what was the assistant district attorney's reaction to the potential that this case had? He loved it. It was going to be a great case. We were going to get a lot of arrests. It meant, uh, for me, it meant a very good financial reward. I mean, you know, I won't deny that. Also, at the same time, it meant that uh, it was going to close down shop for a lot of guys in the ninth precinct. Close down shop for a lot of guys in mind facing, and by that you mean that the corrupt activities of a group yeah. of cops would have to end? Correct. Did there come a time when you decided in anticipation of that 4th of July barbecue to buy drugs off of police officer Alan Brown? Yes, it was considered that we get a, a solid case. Since my closest tie to those officers was Alan Brown, it was considered that we get some concrete evidence on Alan Brown and lieu of getting the rest of the officers later. Okay, so did you in fact make a purchase then of drugs off of, off of Alan Brown? Yes, I did. And would that have been on May the 13th, 1991? I believe so, yes. Okay, and you were the person, did you wear a body recorder at that time in connection with this purchase? Yes, I did. And were you able to capture conversations of police officer Brown in connection with your selling him drugs? Yes, I did. He okay. made full admission and at the same time he sold us drugs. So after May 13, 1991, there was evidence that the department had that a police officer was using drugs. Is that correct? Yes. We had a controlled buy that was successful. Yes, ma'am. After that first controlled buy, did anyone in the department ever ask you or the, other, the team of investigators to expedite the operation because now there was knowledge that a member of the department was using drugs and was on the street? No, not to expedite it, but to uh, span on the, on the case, to, to widen it, to go as deep as we can with as many officers as we can. And who was it that wanted you to go as deep as you could? Who were you working with at this time? At this time, I was working with the two uh, officers from the Field Internal Affairs Unit and the uh, Assistant District Attorney. Okay, so Manhattan South FIU, I'd just like to know. And after the first spy, were you continuing with your efforts to develop the tactical plan for infiltrating this, this party? Yes. Did there come a time when there was a second purchase of drugs off of police officer Alan Brown? Yes, ma'am. Were you the undercover that was used to make this purchase? Yes, I was. Did you once again you wear a body recorder? Yes, I did. Did you capture conversations about this police officer using drugs? I caught the conversation of him using drugs, and at this conversation he also confirmed the barbecue was going to take place, uh, possibly the people that were going to be there. So he mentioned that there would be other officers at the barbecue on the tape? Yes. And he confirmed that the barbecue was going ahead as planned. He, he made invitations of other officers while I was wearing this body wire. He did, and that was recorded? Yes, ma'am. And that recording was given to Manhattan South FIAU? Yes, it was. And to the district attorney? Yes, it was. And the date of that second buy was June the 4th, 1991? Yes, it was. So 30, okay, so 22 days had already passed between the first buy off of Alan Brown and the second buy. Is that accurate? Yes, it was. After the second buy, when you now had evidence twice of a police officer using drugs, did anyone from within the department urge you to expedite the investigation at this point, right after the second buy? Uh... Right after the second right buy? After like the immediately second buy. after? Immediately after. No. And after the second buy, did you continue plans to develop your tactical plan for infiltrating? Yes, it was discussed. Party? It was discussed that we were going to try to buy our narcotics, possibly even from the person that was also providing them to Al Brown. 
and also to possibly buy uh, firearms. Okay, let me back up for a moment then. You mean when you made the second buy, there was also discussion on that tape about police officer Brown being able to purchase guns illegally? Illegally, yes. And was any decision made on how to develop that information? Uh, well, it was tactical at that point. There was no certain Did the decision. district attorney in Manhattan South FIU instruct you at the for when the third buy occurred to say anything to police officer Alan Brown to try to develop the information on guns? Yes, they wanted to be to uh, infiltrate further and deeper, if I can, yes. And so were you instructed then by the DA and Manhattan South FIU to try to purchase guns off of Alan Brown at the third buy? Yes, ma'am. And what was the purpose of these purchases of drugs off of Alan Brown? Was that the objective of the investigation? No, it wasn't. It was uh, to build a foundation uh, for the entire investigation, which really was uh, all the cops that were alleged to be bad in that precinct. Okay. Now let's get to the third buy. The date was set for the third buy of June the 14th, 1991. Is that correct? Yes. And that was 22 days before the barbecue that had been the focus of your investigation. Is that accurate? Correct. And at this point, you said that you had developed a tactical plan for infiltrating that party. Is that correct? Correct. You would agree to wear wire? Yes, I did. You were going to possibly be accompanied by another police officer. Is that accurate? Yes, ma'am. And other plans were well underway that we'll hear about from the next witness. What was your understanding of what was going to happen at that third buy initially? Initially, it was just going to be a controlled buy. We were going to buy whatever possible, whether it would be firearms or narcotics. And uh, we were going to elaborate more on uh, people that were going to be at the party and try to get that on tape. And instead, what happened on June the 14th, 1991, 22 days away from the 4th of July barbecue? Uh, um, on that particular morning, uh, myself and the person I was working with on the cover were informed that uh, that control by would actually be uh, a control by and an arrest. What was your reaction to that decision, to that I order? I was pissed. I was angry because we had developed a case and we had enough to make a very big case and they were just willing to settle for one guy. And what was the reaction of the Manhattan South FIU investigators that you were working with? They were pissed off. They, they, they couldn't really show it uh, as far as being angry, but they were very displeased that our case was being uh, interrupted that way, or did disrupted. They, did they make their anger clear, though? Yes, they did. And what was the reaction of the assistant district attorney that was working on this case? Also furious. Furious. Did you know who made that decision to arrest Officer Brown on that June 14th, day, uh, June 20th, 14th day? Um, it was my understanding that it had come from higher ups. Okay, we'll pursue that. Well, when you say was, okay, go. when you say it was your understanding, what is your understanding based upon factually? Well, here it is. I'm in a situation where I'm pissed off, and I'm saying, you know, uh, one cop versus uh, five or six, seven cops. Uh, to me, that's more money. They're cutting. My, they're cutting my. I understand, but what? You made a statement in answer to my first question that you understand was higher-ups that ordered the arrest without waiting for the development of a case against a number of police officers. Is that correct? Correct. 
What do you base that understanding on? Were you told anything? I was, I was told this, yes. I was told this by the officers that I was working with. That they were already at liberty to give me the response that it came from higher-ups. There were other details to that. We'll get to that in just a minute. Before we get to that, which will be the final point today, I'd like to ask if you could explain to the public what the impact of the order that came down from within the department to arrest Alan Brown 22 days before the barbecue had on that investigation. It killed, killed the rest of the case. And why was that? Because allowing this party to exist would have been catching all these officers uh, in the act. And if the party was cut down, then these officers would be alerted. And since uh, Brown was like one of the major parts of the crew, it would mean that either Brown would either rat them out or they were compromised. So nobody would go anyway, even if he did have it. And of course, was the 4th of July barbecue going to take place? Uh, to my knowledge, it did not. Whose barbecue was that going to be? Al Brown's barbecue. Was it likely that after he was arrested, he'd still have this barbecue? No, uh, I don't think so. Mr. X, was there a single legitimate reason that you were aware of for ordering the arrest of Alan Brown 22 days before this barbecue? Well, I was, I mean, I could give you the, the official reason or I could give you the real reason. Before we get to that, just could, if you could answer this question that I just asked. Are you aware of a single legitimate reason for ordering the arrest of Alan Brown 22 days before the barbecue? Yes. Of a legitimate reason? A legitimate reason, their reason, the response reason. I don't know if it's legitimate or not. To me, it wasn't legitimate, no. Okay, that's what I was getting at. Could you tell us what your understanding of why the order to arrest Brown came down 22 days before the barbecue, uh, despite the you, consequence of that order? Do you want the official reason or, or the real reason? Why don't we hear both? Let's start with the official reason. The official reason was is that the department couldn't allow an officer who they know were ingesting cocaine to be in possession of a firearm and be performing duties in the city of New York as a police officer. That was the official reason. And what and did you understand the real reason to The be? real reason was is that if, if this barbecue took place and the officers uh, would be exposed, then it would show that there was a heavy criminal activity within the police department of the 9th Precinct and that it would make some people in the ranks look very bad uh, and that it was part of an embarrassment scheme. That's my understanding. They, they were feared that it was going to draw a big embarrassment. It was going to show that many cops were crooked, etc.